Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 to 9. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Thank you, Amy. Um, I I do want to make one announcement, one last one before we start um, the sermon. Uh, but we sent a team to Thailand for a vision trip uh, last week. Two out of the three returned uh, this morning at 7.30. Our, our missions director, Lisa, will be returning on Wednesday or Thursday. But I did want to just welcome them back. And so if we can give them a round of applause. Um, we're looking forward to how we can partner with um, some of the local um, uh, missionaries that are in uh, Thailand. And so that was part of the reason why we uh, sent a team out there. Uh, to piggyback off of that, though, uh, a friend of mine who is a missionary once said something that I, I revisit from time to time because it had such an imprint on my, my mind and my heart. And he said, I don't need an easy life, but I do want a good one. And to put what he said in context, my, my old roommate who at one point in his life was a professional poker player, who was a C-level exec, and now he became a missionary. And to put this in even more context, if he had just stayed in America another one to two years, he would have easily made seven figures a year. But because he doesn't value money the way that we do, which is why actually he was a really good poker player, he decided to buy a one-way ticket for his wife, his three-year-old son, and they moved to Cambodia. And he stood up here, instead of making seven figures a year, he stood up at our church begging for money for fundraising to support the work that he would do. And he said on stage, I don't need an easy life but I do want a good one. And I think if we're all honest, um, all of us want good lives. And if it's easy, that's even better. But every single one of us wants to live a good life. Who who amongst us says, I want to live a bad life? Like none of us say anything like that. All of us want to live a a good life. All of us want to do great things. You would not be here in New York City if there wasn't a small part of you that wanted to live a good life and do great things, whether it's going to a great school, great grad school, great firm, great paying job. Um, You wanted a greater platform to influence more and more people. Like, 
you wouldn't be here if there wasn't a small part of you that wanted to do great things and live a good life. But this does beg the question, what does it look like, though, to live a good life? Dostoevsky, in his book, The Brothers Karamazov, says this, the mystery of human existence lies not in just staying alive, but in finding something to live for. Without a concrete idea of what he is living for, man would rather exterminate himself than remain on earth, even though everywhere around him was bread. And the reason why Dostoevsky can say this is because every single one of us, because we are made in the image of God, every one of us is a meaning and purpose-seeking creature. Okay, we can't just eat, sleep, and work. Okay, because the purpose of life is a life of purpose. But this does beg the question, what does it look like to live a good life? If someone were to ask you that question, how would you respond to that question? What does it actually look like to do great things and to live a good life? If you take a look with me at verse 1, 2, and 4, it says this. Now, the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Now, uh, this chapter is famously known as the Tower of Babel. And what's very interesting about this chapter is that this was the world's first skyscraper. And being New Yorkers, I think this should be particularly interesting to us because the Tower of Babel, oftentimes the image that we have of this tower is that it was like a large cylinder shape like the Leaning Tower of Pisa. But what we do know based on archaeology is that the Tower of Babel was probably more like a ziggurat. A ziggurat is sort of like it, it actually looks like the upper portion of the Empire State Building, or like a wedding cake that's not uh, a circle but squares with decreasing s smaller uh, squares on top of it. How do we know this? Um, there's an artifact that was discovered in the late 19th century, 1898, uh, that was called the Burr's Cylinder, if we can pull that up. Uh, this, this, this artifact is small enough where you can hold it in the palm of your hands. Um, it's dating back to the 7th century BC, and it's written in Sumerian in cuneiform form. Uh, cuneiform is that, like, that kind of style of writing. And what we do know based upon um, the, these inscriptions is that King Nebuchadnezzar II is written here. And although King Nebuchadnezzar II is not the one who built the Tower of Babel, he does talk about the Tower of Babel. And this is what it says. I am Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Tower of Borsippa. Borsippa, interestingly enough, means tongue. He's the, he's the builder of the Tower of Tongue. The most ancient monument of Babylon, I built and finished it. A former king built it, they reckon, 42 ages ago, but he did not complete its head since a remote time. People had abandoned it without order or without really knowing why the, 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 the uh, tower was incomplete. And we found a, another artifact in that same region around that same time, a stone tablet, if we can pull that up. 
Uh, and there's inscriptions on this stone tablet as well. And on the right, it talks about how it is King Nebuchadnezzar. And on the left, it's the tower that he was rebuilding that was already there. And if you take a look at it, it does look like the upper portion of the Empire State Building. It's a ziggurat. And the reason why I'm showing this to you is because as we discover more and more from an archaeological perspective, as we dig up and find more and more, the more we discover things, the more it validates the historicity of the scriptures. That what we're reading here is not myth, legend, or fable, but these are real historical people during a real historical setting. I was in Milan a couple weeks ago, and I had the privilege of seeing the Last Supper painting. Uh, which is so impressive uh, in many ways. And it's, you know, if you go see the Mona Lisa, it's not very big and there's like hundreds of people there. And so you're kind of like doing one of these things. But with the Last Supper, they only allow like 15 or 20 people into the room. And it's like the size of the stage. I mean, it is, it is massive and impressive. But the, the Last Supper is over 500 years old. It's older than America, and when you take a look at this picture, the, the Last Supper picture, it's pointing to the fact that there really was a Leonardo da Vinci. And as we look at these artifacts, they are pointing to something, right? We can disagree on what it's pointing to, but it does seem to suggest it's pointing to something that happened in the past. And so all this to say that what we're reading here in Genesis 11 is not just a fictional myth, but these are real people in a real time, in a real setting. But the bigger question that I want to pose to us today is not regarding the historicity of Genesis 11, so much as why did these people want to build this city and this tower? If you take a look at 4a, it says this. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. So why did they build the city and tower? So that they might make a name for themselves. And, and that's just another way of saying, let's do something great, let's accomplish something great, let's achieve something great, and then let's base our identity on that thing we achieve. Let's build our identity upon that thing. Okay, so for these people, it was a city and tower, and every city around the world has something like that. It, and here in New York City, we have the Empire State Building, the Freedom Tower. Paris, you have the Eiffel Tower. Uh, in Dubai, you have the Burj Khalifa. In China, you have the Great Wall of China. Um, and, and, so, and then if you poke deeper into the city, you see other cities and towers that are within the city. So in New York, you have the, the symbol of greatness is you know, money. Dubai is the same thing. Milan, it's fashion. In India, it's a caste system. In Jerusalem, it's religion. We all have cities and towers that we're trying to build and base our identity upon. And so my question to you today is this, what are your cities, what are your towers that you are trying to accomplish and achieve that you are basing your identity and building your identity upon? So it could be a degree from a certain school, you're building that up to base your identity on that. Your portfolio or resume, it could be money. You know what's so fascinating about money? There are so many things that are losing value today, such as things like community and friendships, right? And we know that because of the hypermobile society that we live in. We'll ditch our friends for money. 
Money is the one thing that still hasn't lost value. So it could be building it upon money. It could be a full GCAL, all the different colors on there. And so I'm a very busy person. I'm a very, therefore, important person. It could be getting married and having kids and basing and building your identity on that. It could be having lots of likes and followers. And so you have this big platform and so you're basing your identity on your platform. It could be comfort. We all have things. We all have cities and towers that we are building to make a name for ourselves. For me personally, what was my city or tower that I was building to make a name for myself? Go to seminary, get a master's degree, get a doctorate, start a church, become a seminary professor, write a book or two, hopefully sells really well. And if I do those things, I've made a name for myself. Then I would be someone. And so my question again to you is, what is your city or your tower that you are building right now, that you are basing your entire identity uh, upon? And if you take a look underneath the hood of the things that we're trying to base our identity upon, or if you take a look at the foundation, typically what's driving us to do these things are things like fear. So if you look at 4b, the rest of verse 4, the reason why they build the tower and the city is this, otherwise we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Why are they building the city and tower? It's fear. They don't want to be scattered over the face of the whole earth because it could be their demise. But to put Genesis 11 into context with the rest of Genesis, in Genesis 1, God says to Adam and Eve, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth and subdue it. To Noah in Genesis 9, God says, then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. But in Genesis 11, what we see are people not filling the earth, but instead they're staying together and huddling up. Instead of following God's blueprint for their lives to live the good life, instead they're following their own blueprints for what they think the good life ought to look like. And honestly speaking, we're not that different. Oftentimes the main thing that is driving us to do the things that we do is because there is a distrust of God's plans for our lives and what's driving it is really things like fear. So I was talking to a mom last week, and she was talking about how kids, um, if, if their parents went to elite schools, even if the parents are not pressuring them to go to these elite schools, kids oftentimes feel pressure to go to elite schools just because mom and dad went to these elite schools. And so there's a fear that's driving them to study the way that they study. For some of us, it's our siblings, our stinking brother and sister. They're going to, like, they're doing big things. And so the thing that's driving us is like not wanting to feel like inferior to my brother or my sister. And that's the thing that's driving you. For others of us, it's a fear of being alone, a deep fear of being alone and being single. And so the thing that drives us into all these unhealthy relationships and the reason why we can't ever be single for like longer than a month it's this deep fear of being alone. For some of us, the thing that drives us is this fear of being poor. You know, our parents immigrated here with nothing. 
We're not going to squander the sacrifices that they made by being poor. We're going to kill it because of the sacrifices that they made. So that, that fear of being poor is what's driving us. For others of us, it's that thing that you were bullied about, you were picked on when you were a kid, and you don't want that thing to be true of you. And so there's this chip on your shoulder to bust, bust out of that, that, that paradigm that was placed on you by other people. But if you look underneath the hood and the foundation of everything that we're basing our identity upon, it's some kind of fear that is driving us to do the things that we do. I was listening to a podcast with uh, Lewis Howes. I don't know if any of you are familiar with him, but he's um, uh, a great, great leadership coach for those of you who are in the leadership world. And he's written multiple books on greatness that are New York Times bestsellers. Um, But um, he's written books, uh, uh, almost made it to the NFL before getting injured made uh, a seven-figure salary outside of the sports world. And so, by all accounts, very successful from a worldly metric standpoint. But one of the things that he was sharing about was the thing that drove me to work this hard and to be this successful was because when I was growing up, I was in remedial classes. And it took me seven years to graduate from college. And because I always felt like I was dumb, the thing that was driving me was just this fear of like, actually, you know, like feeling stupid. And so that was the thing that was driving him. The point is, every one of us has fears that drive us to do that, the things that we do, and we tend to build our identity upon each of those cities and towers. And so my question is, as you look underneath the hood, and as you think about the foundation upon which you're building things on, what is the motive Honestly speaking, what is your motive behind doing what you're doing? And what we see here is that God loves us enough at times where he will look at that foundation that you are building your life upon and he will shake it. He will crack it and other times he will destroy that foundation out of his love for you. If you take a look at verse 4 or 5, it says this. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. Now, what's fascinating about this tower is that the description given of it is that it reaches to the heavens. So on the one hand, it's talking about how physically impressive this tower is. But there's more to it than just that. More likely than not, it wasn't as big as the Empire State Building or the Freedom Tower. I think what it's alluding to is not just how physically impressive this thing was, but it's talking about a spiritual component to this tower. The reason why they built this tower to reach to the heavens is because in ancient times, they wanted the gods to come down uh, from the heavens to earth. And so next to every ziggurat was actually a temple for the gods to come down to so that they could worship those gods and thereby get blessings from those gods uh, in return. And so really what this tower was and what the city they were building was, was a desire for the gods to come out and to make a counterfeit Eden to extract blessings from those gods. But look, look, who, shows, look who comes down to verse 5, but the Lord came down. Not Zeus. The Lord came down, and it says in verse 6 to 8, 
The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse our language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. Now, at first glance, you know what this looks like? A very insecure God. He seems like he's very insecure about human progress the way that we're afraid of AI progress. And so we're like a little insecure and afraid of all the progress that AI is making. So what do we do? We got to obliterate it, right, before they take over humanity. And it kind of seems like God is a little bit intimidated by the scientific, technological progress of humanity. But if you look deeper into these verses, what we see is not a God that is insecure about humanity. I don't think so. What we see here is a form of judgment. But even though it, it, it looks like judgment, what we really see underneath that is actually it's a form of mercy. There are times <laughs> where God will come and obliterate your foundation. That thing that you're building your life upon. He will destroy it. He will shake it. He will crack it. But it's not just a form of judgment. Sometimes it has nothing to do with judgment. Sometimes it's actually a form of his mercy. Because if you try to build your life upon anything other than God, that thing is not big enough to support the weight of who you are. I was talking to my friend last night, actually, and he's thinking about buying like a beach house. And so I was like, hey, what, have, you, have you thought about this island? Like, that's a pretty cool island. And what he said to me was, I would, but that island is actually sinking. In 30 years, my, my house would have no value. When you build your life on anything other than Christ the rock, it is sinking sand. Your career, marriage, family, kids, money, all other ground is sinking sand. And so he loves you enough to shake that foundation and to remove that foundation from your life because of his mercy. Because from God's perspective, living a good life and doing great things is not basing our name upon those things. But you know what it looks like to live a good life? It is a cruciform life. It is in the shape of a cross. And that's what the word cruciform means. If you take a look at an aerial view of every Roman Catholic church, it's in the shape of a cross. Isn't that interesting? So there's a long entryway, two wings on the side, and a short part in the front. What does it look like to live a cruciform life or to have a cruciform heart? It means a life of sacrifice. It means a life where you don't have a success mindset, but a service mindset. It looks like a life where you don't come to be served, but to serve. It looks like a mindset where you are not me-centered, but you-centered. It looks like the life of Jesus, who actually did come down from heaven to earth. And he did not sit on a throne, but he gladly hung on a cross, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. For us, the greatest symbol of greatness are not buildings, skyscrapers, or portfolios, but our symbol of greatness is a cross. And for us, the way that we value things is not by making a name for ourselves, but letting him make a name for us. 
because our names are graven on his hands. And the only place that matters that your name is written is not a contract, not your birth certificate, not your passport, not your license, not even your tombstone. The only place that matters where your name is written is in the Lamb's book of life. And unfortunately, that is not something that we can write on our own because our name is not achieved, but it's simply received. It is something that is engraven on his hands and something that he writes uh, on our behalf. And when you understand that true greatness and living a good life is a cruciform life, it is powerful enough for you to make you do crazy things like give up a seven-figure salary and move to the other side of the world with your three-year-old son so that others might know what it means to look at greatness as well in the shape of, your, of a cross. David Brooks writes this on the Rogue to Character. In this book, he studied a lot of great people. And he says, and he's looking for some kind of theme. And he says, the people in this book led diverse lives. But there is one pattern that recurs. They had to go down to go up. They had to descend into the valley of humility to climb to the heights of character the road to character often involves moments of moral crisis, confrontation, and recovery. They had to humble themselves in self-awareness. If they had any hope of rising up, transformed. Alice had to be small to enter Wonderland. Such a great line. But then the beauty began. In the valley of humility, they learned to quiet the self. Only by quieting the self could they see the world clearly when they had quieted themselves, they had opened up space for grace to flood in. They found themselves helped by people they did not expect would help them. They found themselves understood and cared by others in ways they did not imagine before. They found themselves loved in ways they did not deserve. They didn't have to flail about because hands were holding uh, them up. Or to put all of this in a biblical sentence, John the Baptist, when he said, he must increase, I must decrease. That's what it looks like to live a good life. That's what true greatness looks like. And, and I'll just close with this. Um, I asked my friend permission to, to share this story, but I have a dear friend who, um, who may be going to prison. And so they reached out to me for a character reference letter to send to the judge for leniency. It's just like a lot of pressure. It's not something easy to write. And so as I was writing this letter to the judge, I said, I use the analogy of an orange. When you squeeze an orange, what comes out of it? Orange juice. But when you squeeze a person with hardship, trials, difficulties, what, what comes out of it? What comes out of you? Typically things like rage, anger, self-pity, bitterness, um, anger, right? Hatred, venom. These are typically the stuff that comes out of us. And so I was writing to the judge and saying, but for my friend who has been squeezed very hard the past few years, you know what has come out of them? Grace, empathy, compassion, 
kindness. They, my friend is always asking me how I'm doing. When I'm like, no, how are, you, how are you doing? Why are you always thinking about me? It's because they live a you-centered life, not a me-centered life. And from a worldly perspective, if you're going to go to prison, you might think, well, they're not living a good life. They're losing in life. But I tell you, based upon the character that my friend has, they are winning in life. They are living a great life. Because what does the symbol of a great life look like? It is cross-shaped. How many of us are killing it in the world but really losing our souls? That stuff doesn't matter. And so what we have to do is learn how to redefine what a good life looks like. And quite frankly, as, as your pastor, a friend and a brother, I want every one of us in this room to be great at being great. I want every one of us to be great at being great, but it really depends on what you think greatness looks like at the end. Once we have that vision in mind, then we can proceed to take next steps. But I don't want the American dream or what our city values at times to be that end for what the good life looks like. I don't want us to just live an easy life. I want every one of us to live a good one. But what does that look like for you? We don't have to prove anything to our past selves. The only thing I want you to try to prove every day is to your future self. Taking steps every day to become the person God wants everyone us to be. Let's be great at being great. And that comes by understanding countercultural dynamics, like we are taller when we kneel, not when our chins are up. And understanding those dynamics is how we can actually live what is truly the good life. Let's pray together. Lord, I want to pray for my brothers and sisters uh, during this time who are feeling squeezed in particular, like an orange, and they are just dripping with anger, rage, self-pity, insecurity, sorrow at times. And I'm praying for my brothers and sisters who are caught sort of in this, this period that you would remind them of what true greatness looks like. And that is being more and more like you. And sometimes these times are necessary uh, to accomplish those ends. And so help us to be the kind of people that don't necessarily look for just an easy life but help us to be the kind of people that really want a good life, which at times involves pain and suffering and trials and sorrow. But help us to see on the other end, we become more like Jesus. Give us that vision as we wake up tomorrow. In your name I pray, amen. Okay.